Well, good morning, and God bless each and every one of you. It's good to be back with you again this morning. And as we begin, I especially want to thank the elders for um, being patient with me and letting me teach a class this morning back at IBC and arrive after the service had come. It's always a bit of a nail-biter when you're waiting for a guest preacher, so I appreciate their patience. I'm sort of riding the old Methodist circuit this morning and preaching up here and then back down in Sacramento again this evening. Um, but it's good to be back with you. We're continuing to pray for your church and your deliberations, both with your evenings with and without Brett. And uh, we're glad to be uh, be able to serve and be with you. And it's a joy. I know several of you from Cornerstone Christian School, where my family's involved heavily, and we're glad to have partnership in the gospel with you in our region. Uh, as we look this morning, what I want to do, last time we looked at confessionalism, as it were, from Second Timothy. And this morning, I just want to talk to you about God. And let me open with a prayer of illumination, if you will, as we ask for God's help as we consider him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering your saints again together here at Veritas. We pray, our Father, your spirit would be among us, that we might contemplate and meditate true and orthodox and biblical things about you, that we might be all the more zealous to trust the promises of the gospel in your Son and proclaim your excellencies to all around. We ask your help now for the one who hear, for all who hear and the one who expounds your word, that you would be honored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's really a tragic irony that the word holy has become so commonplace today. If it comes up at all, often holy is used to dismiss others as being holier than thou, or it's used in some kind of trivial pun like a Christian coffee shop I once came across called Holy Grounds. But in Scripture, God reveals himself to be holy. And far more than any other self-description in the Bible, God takes to himself holy. Now, we probably typically only think of God's holiness as his moral purity or his righteousness, that God never does anything evil or can never do anything wrong. And of course, that's completely true. But it's not all that we need to say about how Scripture reveals the holiness of God. God's holiness is even more basic, it's more fundamental to God than his purity. God's holiness is his eternal majesty. It's his glory. It's, if you will, God's godness. J.I. Packer said this, Holiness signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread. It's the godness of God. We see this reflected in the worship of eternity in Revelation 15, verse 4. The saints who conquer praise God for his final judgment on earth, and they sing this, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Why must God's name be exalted and glorified forever? Because he alone is holy. He is uniquely reigning and judging over all. And the church's praise there in Revelation 15 was typified long beforehand in the book of Exodus and the song of Moses in Exodus 15. And we read this in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? God is majestic in holiness. 
He is exalted and set apart. He's distinct from every power or person or Pharaoh or any false god. Who is like him? No one. Because God is holy. And of course, the Lord Jesus taught us, his disciples, to pray this way in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And do you remember the first petition in Matthew 6, verse 9? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed has come down to us in tradition. It's a bit of biblish, but to hallow is to treat as holy. Literally, you could translate Matthew 6, 9 as, Father, may your name be kept holy. And our first petition then, and our pattern of prayer, as we seek God, and our first ambition, therefore, in life, is that he be regarded as holy on earth as he is in heaven. From now into eternity, God's people will praise God as holy. And yet the late R.C. Sproul made this observation, the failure of modern Christianity is the failure to understand the holiness of God. Now, if that is true, and if what the Bible says about God's holiness is so pervasive, this is not where we want to fail. Not here. Because holiness is the godness of God. And what I want to do this morning is consider basically two main questions, very simply. What is God's holiness and what does God's holiness mean? And I want us to unwind this as we reflect and meditate upon God's word here in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's think first about what is God's holiness. And I want us to consider the Bible's description and then try to get something of a definition together. Let's think about God's holiness as the Bible describes it. And the basic concept behind both the Hebrew and Greek terms that are translated as holy in our Bibles is separateness, set-apartness. It is to be separate or distinct. And so the, the main idea you want in your minds as you think about holiness is distinction, separation, set apart. And so already by that, you can see that holiness is more basic than even moral purity. In fact, if we think of God's holiness as only moral purity, it will hinder us to consider what holiness means in our lives as we get later. We must go and push. It's more fundamental. It is more distinct. It's separation. And where do we see this in Scripture? Well, holy is used in comparison. We heard it already in Moses' song in Exodus 15. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? It will course through the book of Isaiah later. Uh, consider Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me, says the Lord, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. No one is like God because no one is holy, absolutely like God. In other words, holiness is not simply God's purity, it's his peerlessness. God is peerless. And God will even take holy as his name. He's repeatedly identified in scripture as the holy one. Or you remember Mary in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 declares in verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That is God's unique divine, majestic, mighty acts identifies him as holy, as distinct. So we can justly worship and pray to him as the holy one. 
You remember when God came to Moses earlier in Exodus at Mount Horeb in Exodus 3, remember the Lord appeared in verse 2 in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, burning, yet the bush was not consumed. That fire was not sparked by creation. It wasn't fueled by the bush, but it couldn't be touched. It couldn't be contained. It couldn't be grasped. And do you remember what Moses or God then told to Moses in verse 5? Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. He is set apart. Whenever God depicts his presence in a miraculous and extraordinary way in Scripture, the emphasis is on inaccessibility, incontainability, independence, set-apartness. You don't touch and contain fire. You can't grasp the cloud that leads God's people. God always reveals himself to be inaccessible, to be holy and set apart. And even then, moments later, there in Exodus 3, when Moses asks for the Lord's name, God says, I am who I am, which is intentionally enigmatic. It's circular. It's self-reflexive. We identify one another by comparison and by relationship. I'd say I'm Steve. I'm, I'm a human like other humans. I'm a male like other males. I'm a I'm a meister like other meisters. I'm a father like other fathers and so on. But God never does that because he has no peers. God's not in a genus that can be compared to others. He is self-existent, not caused. He's independent, dependent on nothing and no one. He's simple, not compounded. He's eternal. He's not circumscribed by time, change, or progress. That is all to say he is holy. But then what stands out as we come to Isaiah 6 here and Scripture's witness to God's holiness has to be the trisagion here in verse 3, the song of the seraphs around God's throne. And one calls to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, in Hebrew, you would push emphasis by repetition or completion or entirety is reinforced by repeating something. So for another example, in Genesis 2.17, when God warns Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the fruit he's put in the midst of the garden, God says, the day that you eat of the tree, our Bibles say, you will surely die. But in Hebrew, it's literally dying, you will die. And the repetition is intended to underscore the fact God means it, absolutely underscores it, you will die. And so we translate it as surely or certainly, you will die. And there's only one triad in all of Scripture, and it's right here. And it says that God is holy, 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 three times. That is to say, supremely, absolutely, entirely, totally, without question, holy. And his holiness is demonstrated by the fact that each angel represented here in this narrative has six wings, two covering their faces, two their feet, and these are, remember, unfallen, sinless angels. They have no moral guilt, no evil, and yet God's exalted distinction as holiness requires even pure, sinless angels to cover their feet and faces, for they are not fit to see God, even without moral depravity. They cannot behold him, because God alone is holy. 
completely set apart. This is what angels sing around the throne for eternity. As we move to the end of the Bible, in John's vision in Revelation 4, verse 8, we're told day and night they, the angels, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is holy, holy, holy because he is set apart, separate, distinct. This is the song of pure angels. And if you just consider the distance between us and angels, you have something of a measurement to consider the infinite separation between us and God. We are different from God, not just in degree, but in kind. We have help here from our old Puritan friend, John Owen. Listen to what he says about angels and worms. Think about this. Owen says this, What is an angel more than a worm? A worm is a creature. An angel is no more. He has made the one to creep on earth. He has made the angel to dwell in heaven. There is still a comparison between the two. They agree in something. But what are all the nothings of the world to the God infinitely blessed forever? You see, what Owen says, in essence, is that angels and worms have more in common than you and God. Because they're both creatures. And God is the three times holy creator. Infinitely blessed. Completely exalted. And that is, as we see here in verse 3, that is God's glory. In fact, it's very significant, and you can trace this out some other time. Notice how often glory and holiness are interwoven in the Bible. Notice here again, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Leviticus 10, verse 3, right after the Lord in his holiness struck down Nabat and Abihu for their selfish ambition and approach to the throne around the altar, the Lord says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, that is treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. You see the same thing in Revelation 15 and so on. When God is glorified, what does he put forward? What does he exalt? What does he show forth? It is his holiness. When God seeks his glory, he seeks to display his holiness. Now we see why scripture pushes us to say that holiness is more than just moral purity. It's certainly that, but it's more. To say God is holy is to say he's peerless as well as pure. He's incomparable as well as impeccable. He is moral, yes, but he's majestic first. Or basically to say God is holy is to say God is God. Now to show that we're not making this up, here's some, what of our reformed Puritan friends have put it. Edward Lay in the 17th century said this, Holiness is the incommunicable eminence of the divine majesty, exalted above all, divided from all. Wilhelmus Abrockel, our Dutch friend, says this, Holiness is the pure essence of the character of God. The Lord is holiness itself. Thomas Boston, another Puritan, said, Holiness is the essential glory of the divine nature. Now that's insightful and biblical. When God seeks his glory, he is showing forth his essential holiness, is to show who he is. 
We might say with a contemporary theologian, simply God's holiness is his sacred self-regard. And I think that's about as close to a good definition as I've seen. Sacred self-regard. God seeks God, and that is holiness. To be devoted to God. That's what holiness means. To be devoted to the only one worthy of devotion. And that gets us a long way then to our second question. What does holiness mean for us? If holiness is God's sacred self-regard, what then must it mean for us that God is so holy? I want us to just trace out five implications as we bring this down to touch into our lives and in our meditations. First, what God's holiness means reflects on our communion with God, our communion with him, our worship. As we consider God's holiness as his transcendent distinction, his exaltation and his separation, you think of all the metaphysical attributes of God that make your head hurt, like aseity, that God is from himself, he has no other source, or simplicity, that God has no principles of which he's made up. He is the most basic reality in the universe. And sometimes when we think of these attributes, we wonder, well, does this make God too distant? But this is in no way the case. In fact, this question can miss how God reveals his very being and why. Think briefly of what Paul said to a bunch of pagan philosophers in Acts 17 in Athens. He told them in verse 25 of Acts 17, God who made the world is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Beloved, there are volumes of theology in that sentence. God needs nothing. Don't give to God. Don't serve him. He doesn't need anything. God is in no need of our contribution. He is independent, self-sufficient, separate, and distinct from whom and for whom are everything. Our creator and his creation are completely and infinitely separate and distinct. But then what does Paul go on to say? How does Paul apply that reality? Verse 26 He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything that they should seek God. He is actually not far from each one of us. Do you see God's absolute transcendent separation from creation is what makes his communication and communion with us possible. There's no loss or no impairment to God. It's the distinction of God's holiness that makes relationship with God possible. If God were not distinct, we could have no genuine interaction with him because he would be a part of creation with us. He would be impossible to separate from the trees and the wind. He would be an impersonal force. Or if God could somehow be altered, be pulled into creation, and be changed by creation, then any interaction with us would risk his own corruption. It would be a risk of defilement, and God would have to separate in self-protection for his own sacred self-regard. But because God is separate in holiness, we can seek him. He can speak to us. He can give us his word. He can sustain us by his word. It is because the creator is distinct from creation, we can have communion with him. We can pray. We can worship. We can receive his word as he communicates himself to us. 
God's holiness is vital to our communion with him. Secondly, it's significant in its implications in terms of our comfort from God. God's holiness is a comfort. Just ask Hannah in 1 Samuel. What did she sing in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2? There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, Hannah said. None holy like Yahweh. And then she says, there is no rock like our God. It is the fact of God's incomparability, his singular independence from any and all of creation that we can rely on him, that we can trust him. He alone is dependable in his grace and mercy. He alone is trustworthy in his word and promises. Or what about here in the prophet Isaiah who writes later in chapter 43 to a distressed people who are being promised judgment. He says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It is precisely because of God's exalted independence and transcendence as the Holy One that he is the only one to whom God's people can look for salvation and deliverance and redemption He's the only one to look in our need. It is exactly because God is holy, holy, holy that we can call on his name, ask for deliverance, can cry out to him, and know that he is able to act. Now, God's holiness is not only vital to our communion and our comfort, it also has volumes to teach us about our conformity to the moral law of God. That's thirdly. We see the implications of God's holiness to his moral law. Now again, God's holiness means that there is no one and no thing prior to him. So when we talk about holiness in life, when we talk about obeying God's holy law, it's very important we remember we are not talking about meeting some standard that's prior to God or above him. Something that God himself conforms to, as though there's this principle of holiness that God himself meets. No, when we say words like moral law, or morality, or personal holiness, or obedience, we are simply using expressions as creatures to what really is being like God. He is the standard of morality, and purity, and holiness. It's him. And so that means if God's holiness is his own sacred self-regard, then what does it mean for you and I to be holy? It means to have regard for God. It means to be devoted to God. It's to be devoted to him. It's immensely and tremendously personal. This is what the moral law of God is about. This is what it means to conform to his word. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock rightly said this, that God's law is the image of God's holiness, a transcript of his righteousness, the overflow of his goodness. When we see God's commands, do or don't, we have a transcript of being like God, the overflow of his goodness. And this is completely why, beloved, setting obedience to God's moral law and devotion to God against one another is so wrongheaded. It's completely nonsensical. 
to have ideas or make expressions like, well, God wants us to be devoted to him, not be concerned about obeying his word, is separating what is inseparable. Just as the Lord Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will walk in the pattern of my word. God's law is not some arbitrary principle established outside of him. It's not some impersonal standard. It is the expression of his own holiness for us as creatures. And so when God says in his word, be holy for I am holy, he is essentially saying, be devoted to me as I am devoted to myself because I am the only thing in existence worthy of devotion. I am eternally devoted to my own eternal glory and you are created to do the same. That is what God is saying. And friends, this is why sin, the failure to do what God says and transgressing what God says not to do, this is why it's personal. This is why it matters. Or as James says in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Why is that true? Why is it that only one sin is significant enough to send you into condemnation? How does that happen? It's because it's a personal violation of God. It's about the lawgiver. It's about him. And it's every point, even one point of transgression is transgressing his holiness. And that is what we're all guilty of. And that is why the Bible can say that all have sinned. All have fallen short of his glory. Whether we're upstanding members of a community or whether we're incarcerated, the degree of which we've transgressed makes no matter because we have transgressed the holiness of the lawgiver. It does not matter how many exact laws we have failed in or whether ours are less than another. The main burden is you've rejected the sacred self-regard of God in your own disregard for him. You're unholy. And Isaiah, up to this point in his book, had already said that over God's people. In the chapters before, in Isaiah 1 to 5, Isaiah had decried Israel's society and the great depths of depravity into which they've fallen in their rebellion. And there's six woes. If you, you can check me on this later, start in Isaiah 1. If you read through chapter 5, Isaiah says woe six times. And woe is an oracle of condemnation, an oracle of judgment. Woe are you. But there's only six. And if you know anything about Hebrew accounting, six is something of a cliffhanger. Because completion going reflected in creation is seven. And so there's six woes. Seven is the number of completion. We don't have seven woes until verse five. Notice, and Isaiah says, and I said, woe is who? Me. Because an accurate understanding of the holiness of God has not come home until the woes not only denounce everyone around you, but denounce yourself. However Isaiah compared with others, it was against God and God alone that he had sinned. Woe is him. And in light of God's holiness, Isaiah saw who he really was. And he was undone. He's utterly without excuse. As he, and the proof he gives again in verse 5 here is his unclean lips. Now that's not just Isaiah maybe had a cursing problem. His lips are reflective of his life. Because out of the overflow of your heart, what? 
Your mouth speaks. And so your words reflect who you are. And to dwell in the midst of a people, as he says, of unclean lips, that is to say, there is no one around me who can help me. Because the same condition I find in myself, I see in everyone around me. We're all in this thing together, and we're all unclean. I have no resources outside of me in humanity to deal with my uncleanness. Isaiah here is reflecting the reality of his sin before God, his failure to be devoted to the one in whom we live and move and have our being in order to be devoted to. And it is deserving of eternal judgment because it is an infinite offense against infinite holiness. And so Isaiah is undone. But then we must press further then about God's holiness and consider the fourth implication, and that is salvation. We need to think about God's love in salvation. Now, too often, Christians violate the singular and simple being of God by viewing the revealed perfections or attributes of God as somehow opposed to one another. So often I will hear things like, Pastor, you know, we need to hear more about God's holiness and not his love. To which I say, what are you talking about? (laughs) Of course that's not true. Are somehow God's love and holiness opposed to one another? Do they cancel each other out? Or does God perfectly balance, you know, just a little enough love and a little enough holiness to be balanced? No, we, we never separate, ever, the love and holiness of God. Because they're God. It's him. It's his being. We can't divide God. Or as I'll tell the folks in my church, God's not a pizza. He's not a pie that you cut off the slices you like and leave the rest. He's God. And that's the whole point. And beloved, the good news about the love of God is that it's holy. It's holy love. Now, we typically only consider God's holiness in context of judgment. But consider Hosea 11, verse 9 with me. Hosea 11, 9, where the Lord speaks to Israel. And in the context of Hosea 11, God has already said in verse 7 that Israel is bent on turning away from him. God's people are rejecting him. Their fists are in his face. And God says this in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You catch that? Why will God not execute judgment or destroy his people? Because he is holy and not a man. What do men do in the face of repeated infidelities? What do we do with one another when we've transgressed with each other? Forget it. We go to war. But God is holy. So he responds to his covenant people's infidelity with love. Because he is holy. He is committed in grace Because he is holy. Isaiah 6, what do we see right here? After Isaiah is undone in a vision of God's peerless threefold holiness, in the midst of being taken apart in verse 6, one of the seraphs flies to Isaiah with a coal from the altar. Now remember, they're in the temple. This is the bronze altar. This is the altar on where the sacrifices were consumed. That is, this is the altar and where sacrifices were suffered, a death was suffered in the place of another. 
Because those are the only two options in the universe. Either God and his holiness must judge sinners or he must condemn another in their place as their substitute. No one enters God's presence without first either dying themselves or having another die on their behalf. That's the only two options. And so with this coal coming from that altar... The seraph is not just magically, ceremonially waving away Isaiah's sin. He's not just not dealing with it. The angel is bringing the fire of a sacrifice on behalf of sin and touching Isaiah's lips to say, this substitute is yours. It is done. In love, verse 7, your lips, your guilt, your sin taken away and atoned for, removed. Beloved, God is resolved in grace to deal with the sin of his people because he is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is reflected in his loving grace as much as it is reflected in his eternal justice. And the cross of the Lord Jesus is the expression perfectly of the holiness of God. Not only on that cross is sin judged for what it really is, it is also the love of God expressed as God puts the substitute of his son, the God-man, in the place of sinners on that cross. And his commitment for the son to be our substitute in eternity past, God's love for his people does not waver because... He is holy, holy, holy. And he has sent a substitute to be our savior in the Lord Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God's holiness means you have no excuse for your sin and no escape from judgment. There is none coming. You will have to give an account for your sin. And God's holiness means that there is a way out. There is a salvation and escape from judgment in the Redeemer, in the Holy One in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Call upon Him and know rescue and reconciliation and redemption to the Holy One, whose holiness not only judges sin, but absolves and atones it for all who are his in the Lord Jesus. Trust his son. And dear Christian, I give the same reminder and exhortation to you. How do you know that if you confess your sin today, that God will be faithful to forgive and cleanse you now and tomorrow? And 10 years from now, and if God spares you 50 years until he takes you home, how do you know that his promises will not waver? Because he is holy, holy, holy. And so his promises and grace in the Lord Jesus will never be removed, ever. It's impossible. He is the holy one and not a man. And that brings us then finally to think about our sanctification, our conformity as Christians, those who are trusting Christ. And God's holiness clarifies both the goal and the means of our sanctification. It corrects our mistaking Christian growth as some kind of self-betterment. Far too many Christians think of their goal 
in the Christian life as being the best version of themselves. And to be honest, often the methods are no different than the do's and don'ts of support groups. No, sanctification or personal holiness is becoming more devoted to God, becoming more like God, being conformed into the image of his son. And that's why we can never reduce sanctification to quote-unquote traditional morality of any culture. Uh, The Romans, the Roman culture in which the New Testament was written, they despised patience. They despised gentleness. They despised humility. Those were not virtues. But God didn't because they reflected him. So regardless of how countercultural it was and is, patience and gentleness and kindness and love are to be the virtues and aspirations of God's people because they're who he is. It's reflecting him. Why do we love our enemies? Why do we do good? Why do we show kindness to those who hate us? Because the Lord Jesus said in Luke 6, because he is kind, your father in heaven is merciful. All of this is to be holy as he is holy. And it also reminds us that our primary means of growing in holiness, of growth in the Christian life, is worship and communion of the holy God. Holiness is a result of proximity to the Holy One. It's a consequence of being near this one, of communing with him. It is communicated and granted by God. Too many of the members of our church often fall into, and I'm assuming many of us here will struggle with the same, the I just approach to dealing with our issues in life. I just need to read the Bible more. I just need to pray more. I just need to fill in the blank. Now, however important each one of those means of grace is and how much we just need to do more, that falls far short of the perspective of holiness and change we see in Scripture. Holiness comes from devotion to God in his glory. Think of this great text in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is by communion, worship, and contemplation of the Holy One, we're being changed. Sanctification, beloved, begins with worship. It begins with communion. It begins with seeking the God who seeks himself because he is the only one who is ultimately worth seeking. And as we behold his greatness and holiness, we are transformed into his image from one degree to the next. Worship is a means of holiness. One of the primary, in fact, and sadly one of the most overlooked. Many Christians struggle over and over with immorality and immaturity and sin and doubts, and they're desperately looking for cisterns that have no water and techniques from the world and ignoring their need to behold the Holy One in his glory. Now, we have barely seen a glimmer of all that holiness means in Scripture. This has been an insufficient survey. You could never take it all in. It will be sung by the church for eternity because it is the glory of our incomparable God. But if R.C. Sproul was right and modern Christianity has failed to understand holiness, one thing we can do is fix that and endeavor to do that. 
Because to ignore God's holiness at the end of the day, friends, is to ignore God, period. So may his holiness mark our meditation and our prayer and our praise and our lives until all we will behold in glory is the Holy One in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you alone are holy. Father, Son, and Spirit, we exalt you as three times holy. And we pray that you would give us a glimmer and glimpse of your holiness and glory, that we might grow to be a little more like you from one degree of glory to the next. We pray, our Father, for this sweet congregation here in Roseville, that you would together bind them in communion with you to reflect and proclaim your holiness and glories to hear of all of Roseville. We pray that we would be marked in our thoughts and our meditations by a sacred regard for you as you are eternally and incomparably have sacred self-regard. May you be exalted among us and in our thoughts and minds as we seek to live for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.